to you all and welcome to the Women in Pop podcast. My name is Jet Tattersall. Thank you for tuning in again. We have an absolute cracker of a show for you today. But before we get started, I want to remind you of the exciting news that this March, Women in Pop are holding our very first live event ever, Women in Pop Presents. It will be a fabulous night of music, discussion and female pop power, with the main event being performances of, from some of the three brightest new talents on the Australian music scene, Saya, Marshes and Sarah Wolf. I will also be in attendance chatting to the stellar ladies on stage before their performance, so do come and say hello. Women in Pop Presents will be held on March 20 at the gorgeous Gingers on Oxford Street in Darlinghurst, Sydney. We would love to see you there. Tickets are on sale now at womeninpop.com forward slash live. Now, a bit of a hush from everyone, please, as today we are in the presence of Australian pop music royalty. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s in Australia, it is almost guaranteed you fell in love with her, whether as part of the groundbreaking band I'm Talking or her award-winning solo career, which produced such hits as Bedroom Eyes, Love Dimension, Pash and Oodles More. She can do everything from pop to soul to jazz, is an accomplished stage and screen actor, and she has just released the delicious collaborative album The Dangerous Age with Sean Sennett and Steve Kilby, and she is here to tell us all about it. She is a living legend. She needs no introduction. It is, of course, the iconic Kate Sobrano. Kate, hello, and welcome to Women in Pop. Hi. (laughs) Massive. <laughs> it's massive. It's massive to have you here. Congratulations on The Dangerous Age. It is an absolute feast for the ears and the heart and the soul. You have created this album with Steve Kilby and Sean Sennett. Can you talk me through the creation of this gorgeous thing? The album was constructed in three different states. So I, I didn't meet Steve Kilby during the making of the album. And Sean Sennett and I had... Uh, also been writing long distance for some time as well, for almost 15 years. So we've known each other for, I guess, 30 years, Sean and I. Um, Sean is a very well-respected and um, highly regarded music entertainer uh, journalist. So there are people like Paul McCartney or Bruce Springsteen and David Bowie, actually, who would have him as his preferred journalist because he really was able to get into the heart and soul of an artist's thought process and and work out why an artist had wanted to write a certain album in a certain way. Um, So Sean gave me poetry and I didn't know that he'd co-written it with Steve Kilby at the time. I received it at home during a time when my daughter was probably just starting in school and, and slowly out in the studio and between my gigs late at night and other events when there were those small pockets of time to myself, I started to compose all the music to the poetry. I hadn't even met any of the others in the same room to write with. And then over a period of eight years, the album was created. And we've only really just started hanging out now after its release. So that's, that's the history of the album. How incredible. And you say eight years. And I love that because you can totally feel it. You can feel that weight in the album. I I often speak to artists now and they feel like, oh, you know, they go, it does take a long time. But sometimes they'll say a long time means six months to a year. And you said, yeah, but that's, you know what I mean? A song is a story. A song in itself is such a story and there's so much weight to it. So I'm, I'm so pleased that you guys really just took your time with this because, as you said, it is poetry. It is. And... I don't know for most of the listeners how far back um, the sound of Australian music has impregnated in their psyche because it would seem a lot of, maybe a lot of listeners might be a lot younger and maybe in recent times have only 
come into a culture that's mostly run from um, music programs on television being competitions. But back in the time of my youth, we were created in live circuits. So we would go to every state in the country, usually having driven ourselves there, no, not even uh, planes. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but it sounds like I'm talking about a dinosaur age, but it kind of was. You know, I'd often drive to Sydney from Melbourne five times in a month just to do gigs. Gosh. So we really did circumnavigate the entire country and we'd play and you'd build an audience with every, every with every journey, you'd build another 50 public or another 100 and there was no way of keeping up with them digitally. There was no social media. You didn't have a kind of um, a network that would support your your history on the road or the advances you were making recording. Albums were made in the back seats of cars um, they were pr- produced in in very formal recording studios, not in your backyard or in your bedroom. So the expense was vast. This album is the first of its kind for me, which was the first written, composed, and recorded in a digital age, without any three, without the three of us having met each other, or having been in the same room to even finish the album. And I just thought, wow, look at us. It's like I could never have thought from the dinosaur age I'd be sitting here in what is the, you know, the dystopian sort of future that I imagined and it's actually now, It's actually it actually exists in my time. It's just, it blows my mind. And that an album too, like you say, it's like eight years of, of incubating and you kind of hope that you've outlived styles in those eight years, because so many styles are fleeting in eight years, you hope that you've written something that will last for forever. And at the moment, it's lasting forever for me. And I, I really, I'm really proud of it. I'm, um, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by the the critical response. It's probably the best critically acclaimed album I've had in my career. And I, I'm so, I'm so, I'm quite overwhelmed. It's interesting that you say. It's the most critically acclaimed, and then you talk about it being uh, the most honest and the most personable experience. And what I think is beautiful about that is you've got the two sides because you wanted it to have that longevity. You wanted to have that all-time feel, and you did take your time. You spent eight years making sure everything came from each of you, and it was important to each of you. And when something's that personable, whether it's fiction or whether it's a film or whether it's a story, of course it's going to resonate because it's speaking truth. And then, of course, maybe you get to that point where you go, I don't even care what the critics say. As long as this touches individuals, as long as it touches someone, and isn't that phenomenal? It's then been the thing that the critics have raved about as well. It is. It's the it's the great ironic twist, isn't it, um, that you get to even get to an age where I'm 50-plus now and there's this seemingly uh, steady place in my heart where I'm as equally unimpressed with success as I am with failure. Uh, none of it is a burden anymore. It's very soft and it's light, and and I feel like in doing music on the on in this way, it's a it's a it's a gift actually that modern music making's given me, that I can take my time, I can listen more closely to my subjective voice. I'm not influenceable anymore because I'm not interested in in becoming someone else or wearing someone else's clothes or even trying to appear to be another person other than who I really am. 
and I think that comes with, yeah, it does come with maturity. It also comes with being a parent. I think being a parent, you have an entirely different responsibility. I think as a woman, particularly, and I have a young daughter who's 16, I feel like if you don't follow your truth and you don't represent yourself and you don't back yourself, then what are you saying to your child? What are you actually saying as a woman to a human being who's going to have struggles? There's no way we can avoid struggles. There are always going to be adversities. You know, you're either too fat, you're too thin, you're too tall, you're too short, you're you're too loud, you're too soft. You know, the world will impose... a myriad of different adversities. And so the only job you can do as a parent in the end is to simply hold steady on your course, try to find what note it is you're singing and just sing the fuck out of it. And this album is me singing the fuck out of the only single note that matters to me right now. That's incredible. And you're so right. I mean, you know what I mean? Fans and listeners aside... The fact that you can be your daughter's Shiro from just being absolutely you and having a career that's stemmed so many years and you've worked really hard, but you've worked really hard. And in those years, you've become more of you and you become more truthful and more honest. And, you know, your daughter sees it, the, the, the listeners, it's very imperative on this album. And it's just, I think more women particularly need to need to hear that. Well, they need to know that the struggle as well is very real to break habits because like even as I mentioned at the start of our discussion, I know myself. I know how I respond differently in different environments. If I'm a little nervous, I know the person I cut to as the, the defer character. I know she's the one who talks too much. She's the one who talks in ways she feels that other people want to hear. They, she's, I can talk it in terms of a multiple valent. I know who that person is. And so I think at my age, all I've tried to do now is to say, no, take a bit of self-discipline and don't go to that defer model. Go back again and do what Kurt Cobain said, which is be liked for who you're, who you really are, or like I think his statement actually is better to be loved for who you are rather than to be hated for who you're not, and that is a really clean, perfect place to start, because it's not something you'll ever perfect. I know in each and every day, in every hour, there's a new opportunity to put in a defer model of me, and I just can't do that now. You just have to show up for yourself. Um, No one else will. I love that. Just show up for yourself. And isn't it incredible how long that can take us to learn as well? It's a mindfuck. And it's a (laughs) minefield out there of, of complexity because we're looking at the difference between art and commerce as well. And the two are like oil and water. They never will blend, even though they have to. Yeah, And we're also working in a digital age as well where the communication is going out across so many platforms and the actual art makers themselves can't afford to exist. It's, it's not, it, it's not, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost, it's, it's a funny thing because we all say we should be self-sufficient in everything that we do in life. You know, well, we want the earth to be self-sufficient. We, want, we don't want to borrow and take from others or steal from the future. We, we want to make sure that the thing we grow in the earth has an opportunity to develop and create its own organic reason. The same thing applies to music as well. Mm-hmm. And, but we're at the moment, we're in the, probably one of the greatest wars of, of, of art and commerce, actually. Yeah, Absolutely. 
We talk about this a lot on the show, one with live events and also with streaming. I'm and sure it's, you do. It's an age. Yeah. Now, I do want to talk about you singing the fuck out of it <laughs> because you surely do on yeah. this album. Um, my favourite track, my favourite track is Whatever Happened to Stephen Valentine. Oh, lovely. Oh, my God. And I must say, already, yeah. there, are, there are clips on YouTube popping up of other people having a turn at this song. Seriously? I'm not kidding. That's already there. That's how much this song is hitting. Um, just for our listeners, wow. if they haven't yet heard it, I'm just going to now play Whatever Happened to Stephen Valentine. Locked me in his cabinet with his whiskey and his wine Whatever The poetry in this song, I'm just going to, I don't do it justice like you, but um, Valentine will have his day, but God, he ain't no saint. I'll sing my song forevermore, although my voice grows faint. Locked me in his cabin with his whiskey and his wine. Just like, I swear to God, the amount of high school art projects and mixtapes and bad tattoos that will be put together from these lyrics Amazing. unbelievable. <laughs> Steve Kilby will be thrilled. Oh, <laughs> my God. And your voice, can you talk me through the inspiration and the creation of this track? There are, as you mentioned earlier in the, in the header, there were... There, there are streams of muses that run through my composition because literally I wasn't responsible for the words, so I had to read what I thought were the um, undertones, the sort of frequencies that Steve and Sean were communicating and offer them my sonic reference, like what was I feeling from it. Now, when I remember hearing Amanda and Steve put down this and it was on a voicemail, I instantly went to Hedra circa 1970, Leonard Cohen's Marianne, and I thought I could hear that fantastic romance with the, um, you'll hear there's a certain sort of like a Greek guitar under the piece and a little bit of flamenco guitar and um, all of the those multiple layered harmony, similar to what's in Marianne, which is Leonard Cohen's famous iconic song. And and it only serves all of the sound sonically serves to put you in a in a nostalgia like as if you're sort of wishing you were somewhere where you're not and also there's something about it that's kind of dangerous and it's and it's and it's unfinished and i think that's why I, even i'm listening to the album now and i'm listening i don't very i don't listen a lot to my recorded works just for pleasure i find it very unpleasurable to do that except this album maybe because of the distance that's between us all makes me draw closer to it it feels as though it's that little separation from me um like literally like someone I've loved and lost or someone left behind or someone for whom I always thought I'd come back to and I'm living to return back to that place or that memory and I think that's in that song. Yeah. It's, and you hit the nail right on the head there. It's that poetry, it's that beauty, but it's also this kind of, it's this dark 
memory that needs to come out, but at the same time it's romantic. And again, yes. it's that. It is. It's enough to feed you. It's that turmoil heart. It's it's Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue, Wild Roses. You know, but that same. <laughs> that is bizarre. We were literally just talking about that, not 10, you know, just a half an hour before this. It's incredible, isn't it, the way things happen like that? That it's got that same, like, beauty, poetry, but terrifying yeah. and wrong. It's gorgeous. And I'm also glad that you touched on that nostalgia because um, so long ago is a very well, that's one of my track. Yeah, and actually that's my personal favourite right now. Um, I I love that because uh, Sean, as, an, as the other writer, he knows my love of French cinema and he loved, and it is it's the Francois Hardy and the Gainsbourg family, not only Serge but Charlotte. Um, you know, there's a there's a connection to early cinema of the '60s that's very deep for me. Uh, like the first night we first met, like an endless cigarette that goes on and on and on and on to the seventh floor. You know, I I know I've been that girl and I've I've been that that doe-eyed ingenue who knew that that night would lead to something magnificent. It would lead to something unforgettable and, and something I'd that would be forever after, like a tattoo in my mind. And that song, that song is like a tattoo in my mind. It, 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 it resonates with me every day and I don't know, I just adore it so much. I and I'm it. so glad that's the way you described it because it's such a... It's very cinematic for one, but what I love about it is often these songs lyrically are sung with a kind of, there's that sadness to it. There's a youthful sadness to it when you're looking back and you're looking back at something that's that's not worked out and it's it ended up broken or it maybe didn't work out and there's still that sadness. Whereas this, you've got that weight of maturity with it that looks back on memories with fondness. And I really think that resonates with that moment in time of the Gainsbourg you know what I mean? Like they, they always, later on you talk about memories and they, they go through interviews and Jane Birkin always said that they, they remained friends and they look at each other with kindness and fondness. And that's what that song does. That's what it encaptures. And I think that song is going to be very important for that nostalgic romance. And Yeah, well, the French are great at having no regrets in, because they, they compile um, the history of, of life and it's not measured... It's not more successful because it worked. Sometimes a moment's more successful because it didn't. And that as a catalyst led you to different things that you wouldn't have expected to enjoy. For instance, heartache and uh, a romance lost gives a certain gravitas to life that without it, you know, in fact, I I saw... um, uh, Russell Brand was describing why psychotropics don't work for him. And he said because it created a linear line of his subjective thought, which was no longer interesting to him. It was this banal single note and it had no other, it had no other journey to take. There was no, there was no feeling that he could modify or alter that. It was just singularly the one single note. And he said that note nearly drove him insane, which was the very thing he was trying to cure. Isn't that incredible? Mm. And it's so true. You can just get on this plane and you go, do you know what? I don't need this anymore. But this, oh, I'm but, just going to play it. But the French understand what they it is get too. It. <laughs> they, they, they herald volatility and, and the kind of the stuff of life. They herald the fact that with every struck match is the smell of sulphur. I mean, there's like, 
there, there has to be the context with which you experience your life. And then if you then try to ask yourself to, to be more or beyond it, then you're asking yourself to kind of educate yourself to understand more about what it is about you that makes you tick. That song, um, just to come back to so long ago, I had been struck with glandular fever as a teenager for a very, very long time. So it must have been about four to six months. It was a very, very heavy episode. And I was quite delirious with the fevers and the and my body was just really struggling. And every afternoon I watched midday movies, which back in the day they were only represented on television. You didn't have we didn't have videos. We had no DVDs. We had no VHS machines. You know, if you missed it, that was the last time you'd see it. And it was represented by a host. And every afternoon I'd lay on the couch, um, avidly looking forward to my midday movie. And it came on, and I was in a particularly um, drugged state of of fever. I remember it clearly. And a movie came on called Up the Junction, and it was a 1960s film about a class war between the working class and the then the British upper class, and a young woman had fallen in love with a worker, and the despair that they couldn't make uh, their love coincide with the culture at the time, and she got up the junction, which was a premise of up being pregnant, and then in the 60s then losing the child, which would have been the only thing that kept them together ultimately, and, of course, it ends badly. They don't end up together. But the music, which the Beatles were tuning into, which um, Simon Garfunkel were tuning into in Sounds of Silence, there was there were, there were songs being written by... Um, Bert Backrack and even the Beach Boys. And I know that within them was like, it was almost as if you could have a memory and you could solder it to a sound. And these were the sounds of our memories. And and they were usually descending, cascading chords that would just go over and over and over and over and over. And for some reason, that particular composition brings you back around. It's like this thing. It's like, Mm -mm. and then I realized, um, and I know I'm waffling here, but again, I was in this fever state. Um, so this song, this music track from up the junction informed me how I wanted to tell this story of so long ago. And so then you get that cascading sound, you get that kind of musical om, something that just repeats itself and keeps returning you back to that space. And that's my fever song. Which is memory because you always, you never know what's going on and it will be there to bite you in the ass just as you're about to fall asleep at night. Yeah. That's what our mind does to us. And just for listeners who haven't heard it yet, we're going to play Kate's very favourite on the album, So Long Ago. Now it's crying time again. So, Kate, you 
were one of the innovators of the Australian pop music scene. Um, I'm talking were probably the first band to introduce that more European-sounding synth-pop art pop to the Australian music scene, which is great after what we just discussed. It's a big thing for you. And through your solo career, you never sounded like that typical Australian pop artist. And I feel like you almost raised the bar and you gave Australian music that more global sound. Was it intentional, even in your early career, for you to push the boundaries like this? Yeah, apparently like an idiot savant, I just <laughs> rejected all offers of help <laughs> in an effort to stay true to my course. Like sometimes, I honestly, I could have been laughing myself all the way to the bank and yet here I am still, um, you know, sewing my clothes onto on myself for every show. Um, look, there's many things I could change, many things I would have altered, but the one true thing about myself is that I've never stopped being curious about music and and also curious about culture because I was informed at an early age and maybe spoilt in some ways by having been the youngest of a, of a more mature community. Uh, I'm talking we're all art students, literary students. They were professors of jazz. They were, you know, they were quite literate across the arts and every time we'd tour, for instance, one of them would would offer me an opportunity to learn something about the place we were in, either in New York by taking me to Guggenheim or um, any of the major pop art cultures and explaining to me the history and 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 also the intent behind the authors of the work. If we were in London, I, I remember working with Malcolm McLaren actually you know, wanting to discover more about fashion and how fashion related to music. And so to me, there were there were always reasons why I was making music. It wasn't just sort of just some happy accident that someone saw potential in me and then they, you know, were offered an opportunity to be a Svengali and create it. Instead, I was driving it by my own curiosity and it's still nothing has faded. I'm still as curious about art and music as I ever was. And that's why, you know, even in this year alone, I've made a jazz album. I've just finished an an orchestral album and this one. And I think it's sort of like a, it's, it's just an obligation that you have as an artist. If you really do remain curious, then you have no choice but to continue to follow the muse or turn your back on the muse and turn it all the way down and change your life because quite literally, if you don't act on your inspiration, it will drive you insane. That's incredible. And I'm so glad you mentioned that as well because you have, I mean, you won your aria last year with Trish, which was just an unbelievable jazz album as well. But you have crossed the realms on many occasions, which is just phenomenal. And you've done it with heart and curiosity. And I'm just wondering, is there, I mean, is there an up and coming rap album? Should we be looking for Kate Sobrano <laughs> does death metal? Or like, what's next? <laughs> I have to do it within the anatomy of like my resources <laughs> and my body can't do that death metal voice much as I've tried. Actually, there's this great girl, Karina. Is it Karina Order? This Korean girl. No, she's amazing. Autonomy? Autonomo? Oh, my God. Okay. One of the things that I do love about my life is I get to coordinate my music efforts and interests, whether or even with cinema with some of the greatest young artists in contemporary culture today, Kate or this chick, Karina, like I mentioned, Dallas Fraskus, 
amazing. Um, she's Eka Vandal as well. These, oh, yeah. these are terrific young acts that we, we basically hang out as friends. And we all have the same thing in common. We, we, we're like, um, we can't be turned away from our inspiration. I mean, we're solid chicks who just don't, we're not flighty. In other words, if we establish something or we decide we'd like to do something, we all complete what it is we set out to do. I've, I've yet to see any of them leave anything unfinished. Um, and I do think that that is a successful model for how to remain in a business a long time is that pursue your dream and even if it exhausts you or even if it actually, even if you've turned away from it mid-project, always finish the project because the creative debris that you're left with if you don't will drown you and you have to really be, you have to kill those things that if they are not going to be pursued or, or you're not going to be working them anymore, just kill them dead. Just, just release them because they hang around you like sticky tendrils, creative tendrils. They weigh you down. And all of these girls, it's the one thing we all share in common is if the vision has been announced, you either pursue the fuck out of that vision and you take that vision down, shoulders to the floor, pin it to the ground, be done with it, hands up, say, uncle, done, dead, moved on, and you go into the next phase. Oh, no room for the creative debris. And I, I know you mentioned because you guys were together on Her Sound, Her Story, which was just uh, an off-the-charts documentary that everyone needs to get a look into. It's imperative watching there. Lastly, before we leave you, what is up next for Miss Kate Sobrano? Wow. Well, there's got to be some mysteries left in there. <laughs> Not death metal, apparently, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't always know what I'm going to do next. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. It's almost as if it's it's not even that much turns me on. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I think I probably would lastly end off with a statement, which is true of everything I do in life, which is hurry up! I can't see where I'm going. I love that. I'm going to make some bumper stickers as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Kate. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honour having you here. Kate's new album, The Dangerous Age, with Steve Kilby and Sean Sennett, is out now on all platforms, so please do go and download and stream it now. Now, before you go, do not forget our first ever live event, Women in Pop Presents, featuring Saya, Marshes, and Sarah Wolf, is coming on March 20 at Gingers in Darlinghurst. Tickets are on sale now at womeninpop.com forward slash live and are very limited, so do get in and get in before it's too late. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again very soon. Until next time, from myself and Kate Sobrano, goodbye. Bye. Uh-huh.